Well, good morning. Good morning. Come on. Go ahead and uh, take your Bibles out and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Continue to work through the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we recognize that the first three chapters laid the foundation by revealing that God is chosen from among Jews and Gentiles, a people for himself, who are united into one body, the church. Paul has characterized the unity of believing Jews and Gentiles as one new people, the body of Christ, and has prayed for the perfection of that unity through the mutual experience of Christ's empowering love. He now demonstrates how this is accomplished by God's power through the ministry of gifted people given by Christ to the church so that the body might grow into spiritual maturity. In these latter three chapters of this epistle, Paul instructs God's people how to conduct themselves in union with Christ and with each other. The first exhortation of uh, the second half of Paul's letter comes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 where he exhorts the believers to live worthy of their calling. And this echoes through the rest of the letter. We can't detach being um, imitators of God or even this morning of laying aside falsehood. We can't detach being uh, in marriages and family relationships, even in being strong in the Lord in the strength of his might with this idea that we are to live worthy of of our calling or to walk worthy of our calling. He begins this calling with a discussion on unity in the first half of chapter four. The chapter can be divided into two parts. Negatively, or the latter half of the chapter can be divided into two parts. Negatively, how believers should not live, as we looked at in the previous weeks, where he says, so... This I say and affirm together with you and with, or with the Lord in verse 17, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then positively, as we address the last, or we began to address the last time I was before you, beginning in verse 20, he addresses this positively, how believers should live in light of this where he begins it, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. He says it's like the putting off of garments and putting on new garments. We see that he, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians that knowledge of Christ is to be experiential. To know Christ is to be changed by him that they would be renewed in the spirit and put on the new self, a new life founded in the passive and active obedience of the new Adam in the likeness of whom they were created. Paul now gives practical applications as to how the new person in Christ lives day by day. We will eventually cover these uh, verses 25 through 32, these five exhortations for for believers. This morning we address the first one in verse 25. Follow along as I read for us, beginning in 25 uh, through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must no longer, must no longer, must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us petition him in prayer this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning for your help. For we are before your word, which pierces between body and soul. We stand before your good word, which is truth. And we ask that we would be sanctified by your truth. We ask that this would be done wholly for your glory. We would give glory to the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's no secret that we live in a world that lies. It's full of lies. We live in a world where it rightly views lying as a prison. But truth is relative, such that they can encourage everyone to live their truth, to live according to their truth. They are, white, they are right in one way, for Proverbs says, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. I could think of many times in, in my younger years, especially, that in telling a lie to my parents, I created a web. And eventually, as I told one lie, and then I would have to tell another lie based on that lie, and another lie based on that lie, and on that lie, and on that lie, and it was a prison. Not, no way to get out except for telling the truth. So the world has something right as to lying. If you lie about the truth, it is a prison. But because the world is uh, much as described here as the Gentiles are, have futility of mind and darkened in their understanding, they're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their hearts. And having become callous, they give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Truth is relative. And so we live in a world where truth is in the eyes of the beholder. Not only is truth relative for an individual, but there's also a collective truth 
That is true because it's collective. And so it's in the eyes of the beholder. And so it is for them all the more important to have no competing truths. We may have been paying attention to the headlines this week to see that our federal government is forming uh, some sort of coalition or some sort of department of misinformation or disinformation. They may have resurrected George Orwell for that. But it's this idea that the world recognizes the need for truth. There's a common grace where they recognize that to tell the truth between each other is of great importance for society. But they so twist the truth, calling evil good and good evil, that it should come as no surprise to us that Paul began the pericope with saying that we would no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. And then in verse 25, where we're at, say, therefore, laying aside falsehood. Because truth is not so with us. We serve the God who declares that he is not man, that he should lie. We follow a Savior that proclaimed himself to be the truth and secured our sanctification in truth because his word is truth and sent the spirit of truth so that we may worship him in spirit and truth. We are not to live our truth. We are to live according to the truth. We're not to promote our identity, but the identity of the one in whom we have been born. And certainly we are not to lie, cheat, and steal, but to speak the truth in love, growing up in all aspects unto him. We address our verse this morning under three headings. We'll address the background of what Paul does in verse 25 in quoting uh, the Old Testament prophet. We'll address the basics as it, as it relates to lying and falsehood. And then we'll look at the reason. We'll look at the body that Paul gives as to our motivation towards truth-telling. If we address the background first, which I think is important for us, because I think it will establish for us a great foundation for how Paul views the church the nature of the church, the reality of its eschatological purpose or its end times reality. For if the second Adam has come, then the new has come and the old has passed away. And so, and so the eternal has broken in. Eternal life has broken in to this age. And so we describe this as an overlapping of the ages, that this age will then pass away for the age to come, but it's doing so now in a diminishing of this age, or at least a diminishing in its time. And it's in this section that Paul draws upon the Old Testament specifically in specific parts, but he also draws upon the moral law. The moral law he addresses by way of command, therefore laying aside falsehood. 
There's an understanding here, and we'll talk about it as it relates to who we are in Christ, that this is a reality of the believer, that he has laid aside falsehood. But certainly there's a implication here, especially in the second, in the positive affirmation or the positive statement where he tells them to speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor. It's here we see the benefit that we have in the summation of the truth of scripture in our confession. It says here we see the moral law does forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. The ninth commandment, thou shall not lie in the translation that I memorized it in, comes through the gospel without dissolving, but being strengthened in Christ. We see that here because Paul begins to talk about the effects or the reality of what he established in the doctrinal section of his letter saying many things about being created in Christ, how we are redeemed, how we're going from darkness to light or from dead sinners to new life. And we're reminded that at the, in verse 10 of chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Consider Paul's use of the moral law in, in even this greater section. He does no way to dissolve it, but it is much strengthened in its obligation. Though its threatenings and its punishment and its ability to condemn us has been put away. And so <clears throat> in doing so, it's strengthened for we have no excuse. We've been given the spirit of God to live according to God's truth and so speak truth to one another. The other way we see Paul working with the background or the way we may establish the background here is we see that he's directly quoting from the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah is an exilic prophet. And if you turn with me to his writings in chapter 8 specifically, we'll see where Paul was quoting In Zechariah chapter 8, first look at verse 3 here. We can uh, benefit at least some from the chapters that have been added in our, in our Bibles. For, for the NASB version, it says, The coming peace and prosperity of Zion. It says, The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath... I am jealous for her. And then look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. 
Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And then farther down in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. There is a prophesied second exodus to happen. The second exodus will draw people in to Jerusalem from the east and from the west. And it says, according to these promises, that they shall be his people and he will be their God in truth and righteousness. We're able to recognize this in, in, as it's shadowed here in type and shadow. We're able to recognize uh, this as a new covenant promise. But further on to where Paul actually quotes out of is in verse 16. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. We back up one verse and it says, or two verses, he says, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. And then in light of the good promised, in light of the good purposed, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. It's much uh, common that, that uh, the Lord would speak in different ways by different prophets, and he does so in, in similar ways through the prophet Jeremiah. You can turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll see a similar language, and we'll see how these are connected to the new covenant. We see the promises given in, in, Ze- in Zechariah connected to the promises delineated in Jeremiah 31. In verses 1 through 4, we normally jump to 31 and we will get there, but let's look at 1 through 4. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, went in, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. And then there's the ingathering in verse 8. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together, a great company. They will return here. Again, the, the Lord speaking through type and shadow, we recognize the uh, the many or pre-Exodus, so to speak, that took place after the exiles come back from Babylon, but they recognize that that is 
That is only a foretaste. That is only um, a picture of what the Lord is going to do here because there is a consummated anticipation. There is a, um, a fullness of this gathering. And then we look at verses 11 and 12, and this is where I, I think we're not only going to find uh, connection to Zechariah, but we're going to find connection all the way back to Ephesians 4 with Paul's use of Psalm 78, if you remember his use of Psalm 78, and I'll remind us in a sec, but look at verse 11. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. We have so much imagery there. You you see Psalm 1 come to mind, Psalm 2 come to mind, but as we look at Paul's use of Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4, 8, where he talks about um, ascending the mount of the Lord if he, not, he descended and then he ascended. And we talked about how the Lord descending into the depths of the earth does so by way a special locale of his human soul. He binds the strong man. What do we read in verse 11? that he redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And then there's a taking a people up to Mount Zion in verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. These new covenant promises are found and they have their yes and amen in Christ. And then we get to verse 31 of Jeremiah chapter 31, and we are familiar with this as we find it as this new covenant constitution in many ways. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We see that the divine author provides the consummated interpretation in Hebrews chapter 9, where after discoursing on Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it is written, There in Hebrews 9, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What I want us to see there is the inclusion there in Hebrews, not only of the promise of Jeremiah 31, but also as it relates to an eternal inheritance. What is that eternal inheritance we receive? Well, we see the connection the Holy Spirit is making to these promises that what was prophesied had come to pass through the Messiah. The reason the church inherits these promises is because 
It has been, as G.K. Beale says, adopted by God. And its members are legally adopted sons. And represented by Jesus Christ, the true Israel. Any ethnic Israelites who believe in Jesus are also considered to be true Israel and a part of the church, though it is not their bloodline that makes this so, but rather their faith in Christ. This will be true of all believers throughout the interadvental age until Christ comes a second time to destroy the old cosmos and create a new one in which the prophecies that began fulfillment in him and in the church will be consummated. This, I think, we can draw out of Paul's use of Zechariah in Hebrews 4, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, 25, where he tells these Jew and Gentile Christians, therefore lay aside falsehood to speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, neighbor, for we are members of one another. Not to steal from the last part of my sermon, but he's talking that they are one body, they are one people, and they are to receive this, speak the truth with each one of you, as it is a benefit of the new covenant that made in Christ's blood, that given as a uh, fulfillment of a new exodus. This is the background of us speaking the truth to one another. We see that telling lies is bad and speaking the truth is good, but there's more meat on that bone. There's actually greater motivation for us as believers to do so. This is a, a privilege that we are not still in futility of mind, that we are not still darkened in our understanding we're not still excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our hearts. But we have the distinct privilege to lay aside falsehood and to speak the truth to each other. The basics, what, what is this speaking the truth that's talking about, or what is this falsehood? I found great help from Paul Bain uh, this week. He says, to lie, therefore, is to speak that which agrees not with our mind. So first, we may lie and we may say something that we don't believe is true. We think something and we say something different. That's a lie. Another lie is that which agrees not with the truth of the matter. That is to say something factually untrue or which disagrees from both. We may know what's right, and we may say a lie that is false. In these ways, we lie. This everyone agrees to be a lie when a man speaks one thing and knows another or thinks another to be true. And this again is a lie when a man speaks as he means, but yet his meaning misses the truth of the matter. Consider this as we think about speaking the truth to each other. That we are to speak that which agrees with our mind. We are not to lie. We are not to think one thing and say another to each other. And we are certainly not to say false things about truth. To speak the truth. The, the negative is that we wouldn't lie. That's to lie. But to speak the truth as a positive is to speak as we think or as a person thinks and to think of this or that as it is, to understand the truth so that we may speak truth, truthfully 
but also to speak as we think. <clears throat> this would draw another question to us because we are to speak the truth. But when are you bound to speak the truth? Are we just robots that compute in, or input in, output out? Well, we are bound to speak the truth when authority, temporal or ecclesiastical, does lawfully require. As we make lawful oaths before brothers and sisters, as we uh, stand before judges of temporary authority or civil magistrates of temporal authority, we are to speak the truth when it is lawfully required. When God's, the second re, uh, reason that we are bound to speak the truth is when God's glory or our neighbor's good is procured or God's dishonor and my neighbor's, neighbor's hurt is avoided. We are, to, we are to, one, speak the truth in order to procure the glory of God and our, or our neighbor's good, or we are to speak the truth in order for God to be dishonored or hurt to come to our neighbor. The third reason we are to speak the truth or when we are bound to speak the truth is when circumstances of time, person, and place make it fit to be uttered. We see here that there is uh, some elasticity to when we are bound to speak the truth. But we know that to be truthful is how we should speak, but it's not that we should always speak our minds. Everything you think that is true doesn't need to be said, or everything that you think doesn't need to be said. It's a, it's a thing we try to teach our children. It's a thing I try to teach myself. How many times do we speak, and as soon as it leaves our mouths, we realize that didn't need to be said. It's why we... we we don't really accept the excuse, I didn't mean to say that. You meant to say it because you said it. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, question, the thing is, is that I should not have said it, is the reality. And our motivation behind this is not one of temporary nature, though it would promote unity and help maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. It's not one of temporary nature where we can trust one another, although we should be able to trust each other's words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. No, the reason that Paul gives here is that for we are members of one another. We are a singular body. The reason we are to be truthful in our speech is not related to some external threat of punishment, for that has been done away with on the cross, but it's to be done because of some internal reality. Colossians 3, 9, and 10 says it more directly. It says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We are to put off, we have laid aside the old self, and now we have put on the new self, so that we should not lie to one another. 
for we are members of one another. We try not to lie to ourselves, right? We try not to tell lies to ourselves. We try to tell ourselves the truth. We want to know things how they are. And so with our brothers and sisters, we are to not lie to one another. Certainly this goes beyond in concentric circles from the church to greater and larger communities and ultimately the world. We are not necessarily to lie to the world. But here Paul begins in the church that we are to speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Who are the neighbors? Those that are members of one another. Now that we are members of this new community, we are to speak the truth to one another. Nevertheless, this does not negate the fact that believers are to speak the truth at all times, even in their contacts with unbelievers. Since believers base their lifestyle on reality, there is no need to bring falsehood into any relationship within or without the church. It's what we find ourselves in the most conflict with our world today, for it asks us to lie. It tells us to say things are true, which are factually not true. And we are supposed to be a city of truth. We are the pillar and buttress of truth. It's why you feel that conflict within you when you're asked to do such a thing. Because we are supposed to speak the truth. But we are to do so with the intended end of love. You can certainly take truth as real as a textbook and knock somebody over the head with it, figuratively. Literally, too, but figuratively, you can take the truth without an intended end of love and knock somebody over the head with it. And so we become hateful in our truth instead of loving. The truth doesn't change. Our intention is what changes. We do so with the intended end to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is a controlling factor in how and when we speak the truth amongst each other. We are to speak the truth with an intended end to love each other and not to harm or injure one another, to promote each other's good and not to raise us up on a higher pedestal or to promote our own vanity. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There it is. You can't rejoice in not truth, in lies, but it rejoices with the truth. Paul had previously exhorted the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. And here with added instruction, we, we can see the interplay between love and truth. As we are members of the same body, we are to be truthful in our speech. But as it is to be in love, we are to temper the truth in love. Or the truth is tempered in love. The principle can be stated as such. Not all truth needs to be said, but when we speak, we should be truthful. And we should do so with the intended me end of love. To speak the truth is to love, but we are also to speak the truth in love. I remember 
Paul's ba Paul Bain's counsel is when we were bound to speak the truth. When authority, temporal or ecclesiastical, does lawfully require it. When God's glory or my neighbor's good is procured or God's dishonor or my neighbor's hurt avoided by it. Or when circumstances of time, person, and place make it fit to be uttered. Not all truth needs to be said, but when we speak, we should be truthful. This requires great wisdom and discernment. How are we who are in an, un, in an irreconcilable war within our persons, between the flesh and the spirit, to speak the truth appropriately? Well, I think the answer is clear, as we've always given the answer over time and time again here, is that we should look to the source of truth. We are familiar with Christ's witness to himself in John 14, 1 through 7. Do not let your heart be troubled. Troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may, also, may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Christ here, speaking of himself, says he is the truth. Speaking of, of time to come, of the age to come, of what he was going to do in ascending to the father on high. There is a concern of the disciple Thomas when he says, we don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? The way is through Christ. The way is through Christ who is the truth. The source of truthfulness and union with Christ by the Spirit of Christ. The body we are a part of is the body of the righteous man the head from whom all righteousness flows. You see, we, we are in an irreconcilable war within our persons between the flesh and the spirit so much that even as we speak the truth to one another, intermixed with that good work of speaking the truth is our weaknesses and our sin and our sinfulness such that no uh, works that we, can, that we produce in and of ourselves, could ever stand God's judgment. But as they are sourced in the Spirit, as they are good, they come from the Spirit. And so we put not an emphasis on our own selves and our own ability, but we put an emphasis on the source of truth. Calvin says, from this head of doctrine, that is from the righteousness of the new man, all godly exhortations flow like streams from a fountain. For of all the precepts which relate to life were collected, yet without this principle, they would be of little value. Consider again the world's desire for truth, and yet uncoupled from Christ. 
truth is, as to the world's definition, has no value. It has no definition. It is, it is like the wind. It changes with each season. But we, church, we who have been founded as a city of truth, we who have been founded according to the word of truth, we who have been bought and redeemed by the one who is the truth, in which we cannot separate Christ's truthfulness and truth, for he is truth. We have been given his spirit to do so amongst each other. Rely on this spirit for help in those times when you are required to speak the truth so that we may do so to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor whom we have our, our members of. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning. We, we thank you that you are truth. We need not make it up in ourselves. In some ways, we need not even defend it, for you are truth. And you may stand alone. Oh Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we interact with one another and certainly as we interact with this world. That we may speak the truth appropriately. That we may, by the Spirit of Christ, be that city of truth. Be the holy people who gather upon the mountain of Zion, giving holy praises to you and so speaking the truth to one another. We know you will do this, for you have promised it. By your Spirit, make our spirits willing, so that we may too take joy to participate in this wonderful truth. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, may we all be truth speakers with the goal of love as we follow him who is the way, the truth, and the life. We recognize, I'm sure, as much as I do, how far we fall short of doing that. So let us go to the Lord now in prayer in forgiveness. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we recognize how far we fall short of speaking truth with the aim of love. Lord, we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, not just by breaking this commandment, but the other nine. Lord, we thank you for the promises that were promised long ago of the blessings of the new covenant that we would be knitted together in love for your Son, Jesus Christ, and therefore be truth speakers by the power of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, thank you for the mercy and the forgiveness that is found in his blood. 
Thank you for the truth that is contained in your word which guides us. And in those times of trouble, and in those times of difficulty, grant us wisdom and strength and love to speak the truth for your glory and our good. Thank you, Lord, for that word which was opened up to, opened up to us as your people. May it strengthen us this day and this week to follow. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let us recite that truth, that which we believe is an accurate summation of the truth that is found in the Holy Scriptures, the Apostles' Creed. We have it in our handout. We have it in our hymnal. I would encourage you to incorporate it into your time of family worship that we may memorize it. I would encourage you during this time of, of uh, corporate worship that you would use it as an aid in your handout or your hymnal, but you would try to memorize it. Store this truth, which we believe is an accurate summation of the truth of the scriptures so that it may be uh, second nature. For this is the truth that we believe has been revealed and the truth in which we stand and rest. With that, let us read it together, brothers and sisters. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Well, church, the Lord has prepared his table for true believers. If you're a member here, a member in good standing at another church, or seeking membership, then you are invited to come with gladness to this table of the Lord. Here we give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With these words, our Lord commands all believers to eat and drink. 93, that'll serve as our call to worship this morning, Psalm 93. And as you're finding Psalm 93, please stand with me as I read our divine greeting, a rather longer entry out of the book of Revelation, as John greeted the seven churches in Asia. In Revelation chapter 1. And the Lord greets us out of the same. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Amen. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let us go to the sovereign Lord who reigns now in prayer. O Lord most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners, your greatness is unsearchable, your goodness infinite, your compassions unfailing, your providence boundless, your mercies ever new. We bless you for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it you have presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. We are weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. We are poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. We are blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank you for your unspeakable gift. Your son is our refuge, our foundation in hope and confidence. We depend upon his death. We rest in his righteousness. We desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds. May his love reign in our affections. And his cross inflame us with everlasting love. And it's in his name that we pray and ask and we all say, Amen. Please remain standing and find in your hymn sheets, Be Thou My Vision, as I invite Brother Logan up to lead us in song and praise. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, in your song sheets. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thoughts by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. 
sword for my fight. Be thou my dignity, thou my delight. Thou my soul shelter, thou my high tower. Raise thou me henward, O power of my power. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, so bright and sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. As you're being seated, please open up to the Old Testament, to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. Numbers, chapter 20, as I invite Brother Chris Montez up to read for us Numbers, chapter 20, starting in verse 14. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 20. This is what the Holy Scriptures say. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus, your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. Again the sons, again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. 
Take Aaron and his son, Eleazar, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on his son, Eleazar, so Aaron will be gathered to his people, and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments, and put them on his son, Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. This is the word of the Lord. Just a brief comment as we look at this uh, providential portion out of Numbers. Uh, remember the context. The context is this is the second generation of the children of Israel in the wilderness. I believe this is the 40th year. So they are reaching the end of their wilderness wanderings. And we see them coming to the king of Edom. We know from our Old Testament studies that uh, the Edomites are from Esau. We know the battle that uh, was raging between Esau and Jacob from the beginning, and here we have the children of Israel still battling against Esau as they are confronted with the king of Edom, who does not give them safe passage. But what's most, I think, uh, illustrative of this section really has to do with what we're also learning in Jude about heeding the warnings that the Lord has done in history. This second generation of Israelites saw their parents grumbling. They saw the consequences of their parents' unbelief. And here they are in the 40th year at the end of the wilderness wanderings in unbelief themselves. We need to learn from the judgments of God from the past. This was the warning that Jude gave to the false teachers, giving them, remember, those illustrations of how God had judged in the past, whether in Sodom and Gomorrah or the angels in Genesis 6, or the children of Israel in the wilderness. So here we have, again, happening in the book of Numbers, what we've been learning about in the book of Jude. But to encourage us all who believe and who are faithful, I want to draw your attention to this one spot in this section here. Miriam has died. Now Aaron is going to die. But what does Moses say to the king of Edom? Recalls their time in Egypt and says, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to Yahweh, when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. I have every reason to believe that this angel was that angel of the Lord, who we had been reading about in Jude was Jesus himself. Jesus hears our cries and delivers us out of the Egypt that we are in, out of the trials that we are in. Just as he did physically with the children of Israel out of Egypt, he does now spiritually with us. So when we are like Peter on those waters and we're sinking and we cry out, Jesus, save us, he saves us. Praise be to God. Let us continue our worship with that illustration in mind from the book of Numbers. Let us raise our voices. Please stand. Find in your hymn sheets, all hail 
the power of Jesus' name. How appropriate. As I invite Brother Brad and Logan up to lead us in song. Hail the power of Jesus' name, 218 first tune in your hymnal or in your song sheet. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. hymnal 403 or in your song sheets not what my hands have done titus 3 5 not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us Oh, my God. 
Amen. Please find in your New Testaments now the book of Acts as we have our New Testament scripture reading. I'll be reading for us Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 13. Acts 27, the verse before the next pericope, verse 13 in our NASB version. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Araquito, and when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallow of uh, sorry, Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred the damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night, the angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that God, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast forth anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. 
for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. This should be a reading before the Lord's Supper. This is such a uh, hopeful text where we see the Lord's providence. We see the steadfastness of the Apostle Paul in what the angel of God said. We're connecting back to the numbers passage that we read earlier about the angel of God taking them out of Egypt. What confidence we have in our great God and Savior. The words that he says are true. We can stand on them, especially in times of trouble, when it seems like the boat is sinking. Not one who is faithful will perish in the flood of God's judgment which is coming. What hope we have in our Savior and what a gift he has given us in his word to guide us as an anchor to our soul. Praise be to God. What a time to transition now into prayer. As you look in your handouts, you'll see who we are praying for this morning. We're going to be remembering not only our own congregation and corporately praying for those of the faithful who gather here and their families, but we're also going to be praying for Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, another church in our association whom we know well. And also, we're going to be praying for Tokyo Bible Church. Uh, Just some details that we've received at our last messengers meeting, which again, I made all of these prayer reports available for us on Slack, so I would encourage us all to um, have those prayer reports before us in our personal and private devotions, lifting up the prayer needs of our sister churches and our association. They're praying for us on a regular basis, and we ought to be praying for them. I'm glad that we can do that corporately as a congregation, even this day. Uh, we hear from Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale that they have requests for baptism. Praise be to God. They say, praise our Lord for his gracious renewing of souls in our local body and the joy that we will share as new believers proclaim their faith in baptism. We intimately connect with that providential action as a congregation today, brothers and sisters. They have several who are seeking membership. We want to pray for that. They have been in their new building for about a month. We were blessed to be there for a joint service in my ordination, and Lord willing, we'll be able to worship with them there again. And they're thankful for that building that the Lord has provided them. That is a praise on their behalf. And they're also praying for more elders and deacons. They would like more officers right now. Pastor Rich and Deacon Mario are the only officers in that church, and they desire a plurality of elders and more deacons. So we want to lift up their prayer in that concern as well. As it concerns Tokyo Bible Church, I reached out to Pastor Shiro Nakayama this past week, and I heard back. He said, uh, thank you for your email. We are also encouraged by your regular prayers for Tokyo Bible Church. And he mentions how he had previously talked to Pastor Nate, and that he was glad to uh, correspond with me. He says, here are their requests. That Tokyo Bible Church would be used for gospel ministry in Japan. That the preacher, uh, Brother Shiro, uh, would speak 
words God appropriately during their sermons, for the salvation of the youth that gather with them at Tokyo Bible Church, and that the Lord may provide another elder in their congregation. Again, we see so often that even these churches as far as Tokyo have prayer lists that could be our prayer lists. He asked for our prayers. I gave them to him. And so, Lord willing, they'll be praying for us today in Tokyo. What a blessing the Church of Christ is around the world for each other, for God's glory. As it concerns our local congregation here in Santa Clarita, we want to remember for the deacons that we have uh, a vote for on the back table there. I want to remember Brother Doug, Brother Chris, Brother Andrew in our prayer this morning corporately that the Lord's will would be done in this vote and in this whole process of moving towards uh, installing officers as deacons in Covenant Baptist Church. We're very thankful for that. We want to continue to pray for the health of those in our congregation, those who are struggling with ailments. The Lord is merciful, and yet he is with us in our trials, and he is our ever-present help, not only in times of danger, but in the times of affliction. As it concerns our body and our providences, the Lord is with us ever. And how thankful we are for his strength. For when we are weak, then we are strong in our faith with Christ. We want to continue to also pray for the health of those outside of our congregation. I want to remember Chris's father, uh, who is struggling in health, that the Lord would grant comfort and subside pain and also comfort the whole family during this time. We want to pray for wisdom as it concerns those in our congregation who need wisdom. I assume that is all of us. We also want to pray for Ami and Donovan as they enter the waters of baptism this evening. That's a blessing to our church, and it is a tremendous blessing to these dear souls among us this morning. What a blessing and what a privilege that the Lord is giving us this day, brothers and sisters. We have much to be thankful for and much to pray for. Let us go to our God now who hears our prayers and knows our needs even before we ask. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time of prayer. What a blessing it is, Lord, to consider what you're doing here amongst us and what you're doing around the world. And what a comfort it is, Lord, to know that you are with us each. You're not far from any one of us. You are an ever-present help in times of danger. You are our strength when we are weak. You are our confidence when we are discouraged. You are our hope in times of trouble. Oh, Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer as a congregation this morning. Lord, we want to remember Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale. We want to remember the requests that have been made from our brothers and sisters not too far from us. We want to pray for faith for those who are desiring baptism, that they would continue to be inflamed in their souls, to be recognized and counted among the elect, to be baptized into the local church in Palmdale. What a blessing it is, Lord, to see new life where there was none. That is our hope, even as a congregation, as the gospel goes forth to many who have yet to believe in our own number. The children who gather with us, Lord, we pray for each and every one that they would be brought to life from the dead by the means that you have provided this day. We thank you, Lord, for those who are desiring membership 
at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. May they be covenanted formally with that body to serve with the spiritual gifts that you have given them as believers in Christ and that Grace Reformed Baptist Church as a body of believers would be all the stronger for them. Lord, we praise with them the building that they are worshiping in. I thank you, Lord, for the the providence of what you provide. Lord, you give us more than we need, and you answer our prayers according to your will. And for that, we are thankful. We also pray that you would give them more elders and deacons according to your hand, that the laborers there would be relieved by others doing the work of ministry. Thank you for the work that is being done thus far. And we trust, Lord, in your time you will answer this prayer. Likewise, we pray for Tokyo Bible Church, Pastor Shiro Nakayama. Lord, thank you for, uh, the, um, for the gift of hearing back from him all the way from Tokyo. We are so thankful to be able to pray for a congregation that is that far from us. And so encouraged as we hear their prayer requests to know that they are not farly different from ours. We do pray that you would bless their ministry there, that you would bless the ministry of Pastor Shiro as he equips the saints there, as he feeds them from your word. May it be a bright shining light to others in Tokyo, in their immediate area. May the seeds that are planted be watered, and may you bring the increase, Lord, we beg you. We pray for his labor this morning as he preaches your word, that it would go forth in power and truth and accomplish these things, Lord. We pray for the salvation of the little ones who meet in Tokyo, the little ones who are sitting next to their parents in the order of worship. Lord, that your word would not return void as a promise you have given us, and so we trust that it will work mightily this day as Pastor Shiro preaches to the faithful there. And Lord, like Grace, like Grace Reformed Baptist Church, would you provide Tokyo Bible Church with more officers that the labor there may be shared and that the gospel ministry would be even more effective to the saving of souls and to the nourishment of your people who gather there. And Lord, now at Covenant Baptist Church, we have so much to be thankful for. We thank you for the opportunity of voting on three men who desire the office of deacon. Lord, would you guide us as a congregation by your mighty hand? Would you give us the confidence in knowing that the results come from you, that your will would be done in this church as it concerns our desire to fill the office of deacon, knowing that you provide, Lord, and that you guide your people in voting. You guide your people in prayer. You guide your people in all the things that concern your church. Let us trust and rest in that this morning as we rejoice at the opportunity to even have this vote. Lord, we do pray for wisdom for all those in our congregation, those who are making big decisions and those who are making what seemingly seem like small decisions, and yet, Lord, we recognize that each and every day we are faced with decision-making, and therefore we all need decision 
making that is done in wisdom, and that wisdom comes from you. You say to ask you for wisdom, and you will grant it. Lord, we are corporately asking you for wisdom, recognizing that all the providences come from you and that all the results of our lives are ordered by your decree. And knowing that, we can rest, knowing that all things work together for good to those who love you. And how much more knowing that do we rejoice at the baptisms that will take place this evening with Ami and Donovan. Lord, thank you for these souls who desire to be recognized and to be singled out as united with your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize how important this ordinance is and what it communicates and we rejoice knowing that there are those among us who will be identified with your son Jesus Christ in a visible way that will feed us all as we watch and see the gospel before our eyes. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Savior. Oh Lord, thank you for this gift this Lord's Day. May it be sweet to the eyes of the faithful and may it bring life to the eyes of those who are yet in their sins and now Lord we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word that it would grant us all strength this morning to go forward from this place eager to serve you and to rest in Jesus Christ Father bless Pastor Perkins as he gives us the oracles of God that have been entrusted to your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Come on. Go ahead and uh, take your Bibles out and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. continue to work through the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we recognize that the first three chapters laid the foundation by revealing that God has chosen from among Jews and Gentiles a people for himself who are united into one body, the church. Paul has characterized the unity of believing Jews and Gentiles as one new people, the body of Christ and has prayed for the perfection of that unity through the mutual experience of Christ's empowering love. He now demonstrates how this is accomplished by God's power through the ministry of gifted people given by Christ to the church so that the body might grow into spiritual maturity. In these latter three chapters of this epistle, Paul instructs God's people how to conduct themselves in union with Christ and with each other. The first exhortation of uh, the second half of Paul's letter comes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where he exhorts the believers to live worthy of their calling. And this echoes through the rest of the letter. We can't detach being um, imitators of God or even this morning of laying aside falsehood. We can't detach being 
uh, in marriages and family relationships, even in being strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, with this idea that we are to live worthy of our calling or to walk worthy of our calling. He begins this calling with a discussion on unity in the first half of chapter 4. The chapter can be divided into two parts. Negatively, or the latter half of the chapter can be divided into two parts. Negatively, how believers should not live, as we looked at in the previous weeks, where he says, So this I say and affirm together with you and with, or with the Lord, in verse 17, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then positively, as we address the last, or we began to address the last time I was before you, beginning in verse 20, he addresses this positively, how believers should live in light of this. Where he begins it, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. He says it's like the putting off of garments and putting on new garments. We see that he, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians that knowledge of Christ is to be experiential. To know Christ is to be changed by him. That they would be renewed in the spirit and put on the new self. A new life founded in the passive and active obedience of the new Adam in the likeness of whom they were created. Paul now gives practical applications as to how the new person in Christ lives day by day. We will eventually cover these uh, verses 25 through 32, these five exhortations for for believers. This morning we address the first one in verse 25. Follow along as I read for us beginning in 25 uh, through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must no longer, must no longer, must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us petition him in prayer this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning for your help For we are before your word which pierces between body and soul. Stand before your good word which is truth and we ask that we would be sanctified by your truth. 
We ask that this would be done wholly for your glory. We would give glory to the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's no secret that we live in a world that lies. It's full of lies. We live in a world where it rightly views lying as a prison. But truth is relative. Such that they can encourage everyone to live their truth. To live according to their truth. They are, white, they are right in one way, for Proverbs says, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. I can think of many times in, in my younger years, especially, that in telling a lie to my parents, I created a web. And eventually, as I told one lie, and then I would have to tell another lie based on that line, another lie based on that line, on that line, on that lie, and it was a prison. Not, no way to get out except for telling the truth. So the world has something right as to lying. If you lie about the truth, it is a prison. But because the world is... Uh, much as described here as the Gentiles are, have futility of mind and darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their hearts. And having become callous, they give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Truth is relative. And so we live in a world where truth is in the eyes of the beholder. Not only is truth relative for an individual, but there's also a collective truth that is true because it's collective. And so it's in the eyes of the beholder. And so it is for them all the more important to have no competing truths. We may have been paying attention to the headlines this week to see that our federal government is forming uh, some sort of coalition or some sort of department of misinformation or disinformation. They may have resurrected George Orwell for that. But it's this idea that the world recognizes the need for truth. There's a common grace where they recognize that to tell the truth between each other is of great importance for society. But they so twist the truth, calling evil good and good evil, that it should come as no surprise to us that Paul began the pericope with saying that we would no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. And then in verse 25, where we're at, Say, therefore, laying aside falsehood, because truth is not so with us. We serve the God who declares that he is not man, that he should lie. We follow a Savior that proclaimed himself to be the truth and secured our sanctification in truth because his word is truth and sent the spirit of truth 
so that we may worship him in spirit and truth. We are not to live our truth. We are to live according to the truth. We're not to promote our identity, but the identity of the one in whom we have been born. And certainly we are not to lie, cheat, and steal, but to speak the truth in love, growing up in all aspects unto him. We address our verse this morning under three headings. We'll address the background of what Paul does in verse 25 in quoting uh, the Old Testament prophet. We'll address the basics as it, as it relates to lying and falsehood. And then we'll look at the reason. We'll look at the body that Paul gives as to our motivation towards truth-telling. If we address the background first, which I think is important for us, because I think it will establish for us a great foundation for how Paul views the church the nature of the church, the reality of its eschatological purpose or its end times reality. For if the second Adam has come, then the new has come and the old has passed away. And so, and so the eternal has broken in. Eternal life has broken in to this age. And so we describe this as an overlapping of the ages, that this age will then pass away for the age to come, but it's doing so now in a diminishing of this age, or at least a diminishing in its time. And it's in this section that Paul draws upon the Old Testament specifically in specific parts, but he also draws upon the moral law. The moral law he addresses by way of Command, therefore, laying aside falsehood. There's an understanding here, and we'll talk about it as it relates to who we are in Christ, that this is a reality of the believer, that he has laid aside falsehood. But certainly there's an implication here, especially in the second, in the positive affirmation or the positive statement where he tells them to speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. It's here we see the benefit that we have in the summation of the truth of Scripture in our confession. It says here we see the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. The ninth commandment, thou shall not lie, in the translation that I memorized it in, comes through the gospel without dissolving, but being strengthened. In Christ. We see that here because Paul begins to talk about the effects or the reality of what he established in the doctrinal section of his letter. 
saying many things about being created in Christ, how we are redeemed, how we're going from darkness to light or from dead sinners to new life. And we're reminded that at the, in verse 10 of chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Consider Paul's use of the moral law in, in even this greater section. He does no way to dissolve it, but it is much strengthened in its obligation. Though its threatenings and its punishment and its ability to condemn us has been put away, and so <clears throat> in doing so, it's strengthened. For we have no excuse. We've been given the Spirit of God to live according to God's truth, and so speak truth to one another. The other way we see Paul working with the background or the way we may establish the background here is we see that he's directly quoting from the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah is an exilic prophet. And if you turn with me to his writings in chapter 8 specifically, we'll see where Paul was quoting In Zechariah chapter 8, first look at verse 3 here. We can uh, benefit at least some from the chapters that have been added in our, in our Bibles. For, for the NASB version, it says the coming peace and prosperity of Zion. It says the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath. I am jealous for her. And then look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And then farther down in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. There is a prophesied second exodus to happen. The second exodus will draw people in to Jerusalem from the east and from the west. And it says, according to these promises, that they shall be his people and he will be their God in truth and righteousness. We're able to recognize this in, in, as it's shadowed here in type and shadow. We're able to recognize uh, this as a new covenant Promise, But further on to where Paul actually quotes out of is in verse 16. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. We back up one verse and it says, or two verses. He says, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts. 
and I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. And then in light of the good promised, in light of the good purposed, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. It's much uh, common that, that uh, the Lord would speak in different ways by different prophets, and he does so in, in similar ways through the prophet Jeremiah. You can turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll see a similar language, and we'll see how these are connected to the new covenant. We see the promises given in, in, Ze- in Zechariah connected to the promises delineated in Jeremiah 31. In verses 1 through 4, we normally jump to 31 and we will get there, but let's look at 1 through 4. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, went in When it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. And then there's the ingathering in verse 8. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together, a great company. They will return here. Again, the, the Lord speaking through type and shadow, we recognize the Uh, the mini or pre-Exodus, so to speak, that took place after the exiles come back from Babylon, but they recognize that that is is only a foretaste. That is only um, a picture of what the Lord is going to do here because there is a consummated anticipation. There is a, um, a fullness of this gathering. And then we look at verses 11 and 12, and this is where I I think we're not only going to find connection to Zechariah, but we're going to find connection all the way back to Ephesians 4 with Paul's use of Psalm 78, if you remember his use of Psalm 78, and I'll remind us in a sec, but look at verse 11. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. We have so much imagery there. You you see Psalm 1 come to mind, Psalm 2 come to mind, but as we look at Paul's use of Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4, 8, where he talks about um, ascending the mount of the Lord. If he, not, he descended and then he ascended. And we talked about how the Lord descending into the depths of the earth 
does so by way of special locale of his human soul. He binds the strong man. What do we read in verse 11? That he redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And then there's a taking a people up to Mount Zion in verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. These new covenant promises are found and they have their yes and amen in Christ. And then we get to verse 31 of Jeremiah chapter 31. And we are familiar with this as it, we find it as this new covenant constitution in many ways. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We see that the divine author provides the consummated interpretation in Hebrews chapter 9, where after discoursing on Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it is written there in Hebrews 9, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What I want us to see there is the inclusion there in Hebrews, not only of the promise of Jeremiah 31, but also as it relates to an eternal inheritance. What is that eternal inheritance we receive? Well, we see the connection the Holy Spirit is making to these promises that what was prophesied had come to pass through the Messiah. The reason the church inherits these promises is because it has been, as G.K. Beale says, adopted by God and its members are legally adopted sons and represented by Jesus Christ, the true Israel. Any ethnic Israelites who believe in Jesus are also considered to be true Israel and a part of the church, though it is not their bloodline that makes this so, but rather their faith in Christ. This will be true of all believers throughout the interadvental age until Christ comes a second time to destroy the old cosmos and create a new one in which the prophecies that began fulfillment in him and in the church will be consummated. This I think we can draw out of Paul's use of Zechariah in Hebrews 4, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, 25, where he tells these Jew and Gentile Christians, therefore lay aside falsehood to speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, neighbor, for we are members of one another. Not to steal from the last part of my sermon, but he's talking that they are one body, they are one people, and they are to receive this, speak the truth with each one of you, as it is a benefit of the new covenant that made in Christ's blood, that given as a uh, fulfillment of a new exodus. This is the background of us speaking the truth to one another. We see that 
telling lies is bad and speaking the truth is good, but there's more meat on that bone. There's actually greater motivation for us as believers to do so. This is a a privilege that we are not still in futility of mind, that we are not still darkened in our understanding. We're not still excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our hearts. But we have the distinct privilege to lay aside falsehood and to speak the truth to each other. The basics, what, what is this speaking the truth that's talking about, or what is this falsehood? I found great help from Paul Bain uh, this week. He says, to lie, therefore, is to speak that which agrees not with our mind. So first, we may lie and we may say something that we don't believe is true. We think something and we say something different. That's a lie. Another lie is that which agrees not with the truth of the matter. That is to say something factually untrue or which disagrees from both. We may know what's right and we may say a lie that is false. In these ways, we lie. This everyone agrees to be a lie when a man speaks one thing and knows another or thinks another to be true. And this again is a lie when a man speaks as he means, but yet his meaning misses the truth of the matter. Consider this as we think about speaking the truth to each other. That we are to speak that which agrees with our mind. We are not to lie. We are not to think one thing and say another to each other. And we are certainly not to say false things about truth. To speak the truth, the the negative is that we wouldn't lie, that's to lie. But to speak the truth as a positive is to speak as we think or as a person thinks and to think of this or that as it is. To understand the truth so that we may speak truthfully, but also to speak as we think. This would draw another question to us because we are to speak the truth. But when are you bound to speak the truth? Are we just robots that compute in, or input in, output out? Well, we are bound to speak the truth when authority, temporal or ecclesiastical, does lawfully require. As we make lawful oaths before brothers and sisters, as we uh, stand before judges, of temporary authority or civil magistrates of temporal authority, we are to speak the truth when it is lawfully required. When God's, the second re, uh, reason that we are bound to speak the truth is when God's glory or our neighbor's good is procured or God's dishonor and my neighbor's, neighbor's hurt is avoided. We are to we are to, one, speak the truth in order to procure the glory of God and our na- or our neighbor's good, or we are to speak the truth in order for God to be dishonored or hurt to come to our neighbor. The third reason we are to speak the truth or when we are bound to speak the truth is 
when circumstances of time, person, and place make it fit to be uttered. We see here that there is uh, some elasticity to when we are bound to speak the truth. But we know that to be truthful is how we should speak, but it's not that we should always speak our minds. Everything you think that is true doesn't need to be said, or everything that you think doesn't need to be said. It's a, it's a thing we try to teach our children. It's a thing I try to teach myself. How many times do we speak, and as soon as it leaves our mouths, we realize that didn't need to be said. It's why we, we, we don't really accept the excuse, I didn't mean to say that. You meant to say it because you said it. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The thing is, is that I should not have said it, is the reality. And our motivation behind this is not one of temporary nature, though it would promote unity and help maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. It's not one of temporary nature where we can trust one another, although we should be able to trust each other's words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. No, the reason that Paul gives here is that for we are members of one another. We are a singular body. The reason we are to be truthful in our speech is not related to some external threat of punishment, for that has been done away with on the cross, but it's to be done because of some internal reality. Colossians 3, 9, and 10 says it more directly. It says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We are to put off. We have laid aside the old self. And now we have put on the new self so that we should not lie to one another. For we are members of one another. We try not to lie to ourselves, right? We try not to tell lies to ourselves. We try to tell ourselves the truth. We want to know things how they are. And so with our brothers and sisters, we are to not lie to one another. Certainly this goes beyond in concentric circles from the church to greater and larger communities and ultimately the world. We are not necessarily to lie to the world. But here Paul begins in the church that we are to speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Who are the neighbors? Those that are members of one another. Now that we are members of this new community, we are to speak the truth to one another. Nevertheless, this does not negate the fact that believers are to speak the truth at all times, even in their contacts with unbelievers. Since believers base their lifestyle on reality, there is no need to bring falsehood into any relationship within or without the church. It's what we find ourselves in the most conflict with our world today, for it asks us to lie. It tells us to say things are true, which are factually not true. And we are supposed to be a city of truth. We are the pillar and buttress of truth. 
That's why you feel that conflict within you when you're asked to do such a thing. Because we are supposed to speak the truth. But we are to do so with the intended end of love. You can certainly take truth as real as a textbook and knock somebody over the head with it, figuratively. Literally too, but figuratively, you can take the truth without an intended end of love and knock somebody over the head with it. And so we become hateful in our truth instead of loving. The truth doesn't change. Our intention is what changes. We do so with the intended end to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is a controlling factor in how and when we speak the truth amongst each other. We are to speak the truth with an intended end to love each other and not to harm or injure one another, to promote each other's good and not to raise us up on a higher pedestal or to promote our own vanity. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There it is. You can't rejoice in not truth, in lies, but it rejoices with the truth. Paul had previously exhorted the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. And here with added instruction, we, we can see the interplay between love and truth. As we are members of the same body, we are to be truthful in our speech. But as it is to be in love, we are to temper the truth in love. Or the truth is tempered in love. The principle can be stated as such. Not all truth needs to be said, but when we speak, we should be truthful. And we should do so with the intended end of love. To speak the truth is to love, but we are also to speak the truth in love. I remember Paul's Bain, Paul Bain's counsel is when we were bound to speak the truth. When authority, temporal or ecclesiastical, does lawfully require it. When God's glory or my neighbor's good is procured or God's dishonor or my neighbor's hurt avoided by it. Or when circumstances of time, person and place make it fit to be uttered. Not all truth needs to be said, but when we speak, we should be truthful. This requires great wisdom and discernment. How are we who are in an, un, in an irreconcilable war within our persons between the flesh and the spirit to speak the truth appropriately? Well, I think the answer is clear as we've always given the answer over time and time again here is that we should look to the source of truth. We are familiar with Christ's witness to himself in John 14, 1 through 7. Do not let your heart be troubled. Troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may, also, may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Christ here, speaking of himself, says he is the truth. Speaking of of time to come, of the age to come, of what he was going to do in ascending to the Father on high. There is a concern of the disciple Thomas when he says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? The way is through Christ. The way is through Christ who is the truth. The source of truthfulness and union with Christ by the Spirit of Christ. The body we are a part of is the body of the righteous man, the head from whom all righteousness flows. You see, we, we are in an irreconcilable war within our persons between the flesh and the spirit so much that even as we speak the truth to one another, intermixed with that good work of speaking the truth is our weaknesses and our sin and our sinfulness such that no uh, works that we, can, that we produce in and of ourselves could ever stand God's judgment. But as they are sourced in the Spirit, as they are good, they come from the Spirit. And so we put not an emphasis on our own selves and our own ability, but we put an emphasis on the source of truth. Calvin says, from this head of doctrine, that is from the righteousness of the new man, all godly exhortations flow like streams from a fountain. For of all the precepts which relate to life were collected, yet without this principle, they would be of little value. Consider again the world's desire for truth, and yet uncoupled from Christ. Truth is, as to the world's definition, has no value. It has no definition. It is, it is like the wind. It changes with each season. But we, church, we who have been founded as a city of truth, we who have been founded according to the word of truth, we who have been bought and redeemed by the one who is the truth, in which we cannot separate Christ's truthfulness and truth, for he is truth. We have been given his spirit to do so amongst each other. Rely on this spirit for help in those times when you are required to speak the truth so that we may do so to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor whom we have our, our members of. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning. We, we thank you that you are truth. We need not make it up in ourselves. In some ways, we need not even defend it. For you are truth. And you may stand alone. 
O Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we interact with one another and certainly as we interact with this world, that we may speak the truth appropriately, that we may, by the Spirit of Christ, be that city of truth, be the holy people who gather upon the mountain of Zion, giving holy praises to you, and so speaking the truth to one another. We know you will do this, for you have promised it. By your Spirit, make our spirits willing, so that we may too take joy to participate in this wonderful truth. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, may we all be truth speakers with the goal of love as we follow him who is the way, the truth, and the life. We recognize, I'm sure, as much as I do, how far we fall short of doing that. So let us go to the Lord now in prayer and forgiveness. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we recognize how far we fall short of speaking truth with the aim of love. Lord, we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, not just by breaking this commandment, but the other nine. Lord, we thank you for the promises that were promised long ago of the blessings of the new covenant that we would be knitted together in love for your Son, Jesus Christ, and therefore be truth speakers by the power of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, thank you for the mercy and the forgiveness that is found in his blood. Thank you for the truth that is contained in your word which guides us. And in those times of trouble, and in those times of difficulty, Grant us wisdom and strength and love to speak the truth for your glory and our good. Thank you, Lord, for that word which was opened up to, opened up to us as your people. May it strengthen us this day and this week to follow. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper... Let us recite that truth, that which we believe is an accurate summation of the truth that is found in the Holy Scriptures, the Apostles' Creed. We have it in our handout. We have it in our hymnal. I would encourage you to incorporate it into your time of family worship that we may memorize it. I would encourage you during this time of, of uh, corporate worship that you would use it as an aid in your handout or your hymnal, but you would try to memorize it. Store this truth, which we believe is an accurate summation of the truth of the scriptures, so that it may be uh, second nature. For this is the truth that we believe has been revealed, and the truth in which we stand and rest. 
With that, let us read it together, brothers and sisters. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Well, church, the Lord has prepared his table for true believers. If you're a member here, a member in good standing at another church, or seeking membership, then you are invited to come with gladness to this table of the Lord. Here we give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With these words, our Lord commands all believers to eat and drink 